0: The Progress Report is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, a podcast on the network that I want to highlight is the entire first season of Off Court Pod featuring friend of the show, Abdul Malik and Aitan Tobin. It tells irreverent but also deeply researched and interesting stories about the history and political economy of sports. And that's just one show. There's a ton of other amazing content on Harbinger, and I can't say how much of a fantastic project that it is. So to support it, to get access to exclusive shows and other supporter-only content, go to harbingermedianetwork.com. Now, on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to The Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We're recording today here in amiskwichiwa otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 Territory on the banks of the kisiskisaw or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today is independent journalist and co-host of the Sandy and Nora podcast, and someone who I'm just incredibly glad exists and does the work <laughs> she does. It's uh, Nora Loretto. Nora, welcome to the pod.
1: Hey, thank you for having me.
0: So small talk question, the primary small talk question of the next few months is, uh, have you gotten your shot yet? Have you you (laughs) got it scheduled? Have you been vaccinated? What's your your status?
1: Yeah, I have my appointment that is up in almost a week, just under a week. So by next Monday, I will have had my
0: first dose.
1: So I'm pretty excited about that. What about you?
0: Yeah, I got vaccinated like literally the first day that people in my age group could get vaccinated. So last Thursday, so I'm, I am on it. My partner got vaccinated a few days after me. And, um, yeah, no, it's just, uh, I mean, shit is fucked up here, (laughs) but getting vaccinated is like a thing I can control. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so here we are. And I, for one, am ready for what did, what did Justin Trudeau call it? One dose summer?
1: (laughs) Sure. It's like, whatever. I, yeah, i'm I'm ready as well for a summer that doesn't look like last summer, although you know, we still made the the best out of an ok situation, a shitty situation. But it was ok,
0: yeah. I mean, if you're outside, it's your exactly. summertime. You know what I mean? I mean, if, if my circle of people is less, that sucks. But uh, the, I mean, winter got pretty fucking dark. I got to say that.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, here too. <laughs>
0: especially in like December when our fucking cases were peaking and people were dropping dead. And it was, and Justin uh, Jason Kenny was just, like, did not give a fuck. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, we um, you know, the sun sets here at about two o'clock and uh our, our winter got pretty pretty lonely and cold as well. And uh and what made it worse was that we had such a little amount of snow that it was like, oh, this is weird.
0: <laughs> we couldn't even we go had, sledding like, or do like skiing. Well, we had
1: no, we had enough I mean it's Quebec City, we had a, a good amount of snow, but like it was like ten percent of what's normal. So mm-hmm. it was a bit weird. We didn't have that much shoveling, I'd say, i guess. I guess.
0: I mean, Jason Kenney has been trying to frame this as the best summer ever, and I, I think that might be a little ambitious. I think one-day yeah. summer might be a little more, <laughs> more realistic and doable, but uh, I don't like either of those politicians, so <laughs> let's stop talking about them. So, sure. Okay, so Nora, the, the big reason why I wanted to have you on is the work you're doing tracking COVID deaths, and particularly tracking COVID deaths in regards to residential care can you just give us a sense of the scale of what you've done and like how many deaths have you actually tracked down to residential care and like what do you kind of classify as residential care, residential care? like like give us the kind of like explanation of this work that you've been doing
1: sure so I started more than a year ago when news reports started to come out of really high mass death counts within some facilities. And the the first facilities that were on people's radars were, well, I mean, the real first one was the... Residents Heron, the Heron in Dorval in Quebec. And the Montreal Gazette broke this news with the stories that were just like horrific from people dying uh, on the floor in their beds and their own waste and all these kinds of things that we've you know since heard from many other facilities as well. At the same time, there was a massive outbreak in um a very small town in Ontario called Bob Cajun and some larger centers were starting to see mass deaths as well, because of course there's a delay between the virus showing up like at all. And then the virus showing up in residential care and then the delay that it requires to actually result in deaths. And so I was counting this every night Uh, in the beginning, it was very hard to get this data because most public health, um, agencies were not releasing it. And so, uh, you know, you would you would hear stories of certain facilities in Quebec having a lot of deaths, but there'd be no official count. And so what I started to do was to go through obituaries to try and see if there was obituaries that mentioned someone had died from COVID and where they had been living, which was like not a super precise measurement, but it it at least created kind of like a skeleton of, of where the real hotspots were. And so by the end of May, when the Quebec Ministry of Health actually started to issue this on, in daily briefings, how many how many people had died in in each residence, Um, you know, the numbers were way low because of course most families wouldn't say this kind of thing in an obituary, but um, the ones that were high, I had already been able to track. There was several deaths, you know, associated with that facility. So that's how I started, Um, and since uh, it has evolved somewhat because the data has changed, it has gotten better and it's also gotten worse depending on where you are in Canada. And sometimes it's as simple as Quebec, which is I don't have to search anything. I just have to go to the Quebec Ministry website and add the information for the day, although it's not cumulative, so I have to do it every day (laughs) so I don't miss one. Um, And then there's situations like Alberta where it's kind of like whether or not the ministry or Alberta Health Services wants to just mention the deaths and if they were connected to an outbreak. And so you get this weird situation where sometimes Alberta says like a lot of information and it's really great. And it says exactly where the person probably got COVID and died. And so like, for example, I know that thanks to um, uh, one report from from AHS, there was at least one death related to an outbreak in Lethbridge in a a church uh, gathering of some sort. Um, that's not the kind of information that we've gotten anywhere else, but it also only happened once. <laughs> and so I don't know uh, what's going on with the AHS and why we're not getting, or the Ministry of Health and why we're not getting, um, you know, daily consistent reporting. But that means that I also then have to crawl through media reports. And I've started to crawl through GoFundMe, which is like pretty fraught because. You know, it means that I'm reading between 25 and 50 pages a night, whether they're public health pages or news news sites or GoFundMe, and, you know, I, I make mistakes and I miss stuff, and, um, and it's really tedious and it's really time consuming. But that is what I have been doing every night now since about April 13th.
0: And so, residential care facilities, like what what falls under this rubric um, that you have kind of created here.
1: Right. So residential care facility is like a long uh, or a shorthand, I guess, uh, way of describing any facility where someone is sleeping inside of it. Um, It's not an official term because within like the hospital care, uh, the hospital system, there's different ways of talking about different levels of care. But Mm -hmm. um, but essentially it's it's any facility that someone has died Within um, and they were in that facility's care, and so the the majority of what's on the list is long term care, which what people would associate with um, the highest number of deaths in Canada. Uh, and so, long term care is uh, is an official term. It's uh, it's long term living for people who have complex medical needs. And then after that, the second largest group is retirement residences, which are not long-term care facilities, but often have very similar kinds of services. And they also have the same operators oftentimes. And so it is a bit confusing to figure out if a facility is long-term care or retirement if you're a layperson. And journalists haven't really been that great in making sure people understand the difference. Um,
0: And there's a bunch of jargon there too, right? Like in Alberta, we have like supportive living, which is like... Kind of like long-term care light or whatever, and every province has this kind of these different, you know, designations and nomenclature, right? But
1: yeah, exactly. And it's and it's it's kind of like the most important question is how regulated are they? And so you know, long-term care is very highly regulated, Um, but then depending on where you are, retirement living often just looks like apartment living, and you know there might be some regulations related to food or related to the care that you might get living in one of these facilities, but. By and large, it's it's like an apartment complex and it's really treated as such. Then you have adult assisted living, which sometimes is long term care or sometimes, you know, uh, rehab facilities specifically for adults who are who are expected to live for many, many years, but that might need complex care um, f- to help them with their daily needs. And those also range from being regulated to not at all regulated. And um, You know, and then as I'm collecting this, it's like, well, I'm seeing all this stuff every night, so I might as well just make a list of everything I see. So you know, so so jails and prisons are on the list. Uh, There are um, shelters and group homes are on the list, and uh, increasingly uh, hospitals are on the list because there's been a lot of cases that have been caught in hospital that have led to death. Uh, So I've tracked just over a thousand, and um, Mm -hmm. that number got a huge bump thanks to work that journalists at um, I think it was La Presse, but now that I'm saying it, I'm like, oh my gosh, was it La Presse or Radio Canada? I don't remember. It just came out this past week. But anyway, through an FOI, journalists um, got government data that 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 showed that um, more than 400 people had died within hospital in Quebec that hadn't been previously reported. Um, and you know, there's there's some situations like uh, one hospital in in the in the town of Saint Jerome, which is north of Montreal. There's been at least 76 people that died from getting COVID in hospital. So these are really big outbreaks, oftentimes, but they're just not. Consistently reported, and so that's also a part of my list.
0: Interesting. And so, what what does the final tally come to? Like, what percentage of total deaths in Canada are happening in these residential care facilities?
1: Well, that you know, I actually hesitate to give you a number because, um, so what I've tracked overall, if you look at overall residential care, the numbers that are about 70 percent, um, and you know, you take the the total number of officially, you know, counted COVID deaths, and you know, make a percentage out of that based on all, however many I've added up, and I'm, I'm, I've added up more than seventeen thousand deaths. But the problem with giving an exact count for long term care versus retirement care versus blah 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 blah, is it assumes that we even have good numbers. And so, you know, for a lot of this pandemic, uh, it was in the high eighties, like that we were identifying people were dying. Uh, in residential care, specifically long-term care, from COVID, but as the numbers have continued to shift, and as more information has come out about excess death information, and this is this is something that I'm I'm working on with uh with with researchers from different uh, different universities, excess deaths in this country are far higher uh, than what uh, they should have been. And uh, there's good reason to believe that uh, a surprising number, a huge chunk of deaths, of, of COVID deaths have not been reported. And so, you know, there's been a lot of attention in the third wave on Um, just how many younger people had been hit by COVID that hadn't been hit in the first two waves. But I'm not totally convinced that that's what's happening. It it seems more likely that actually deaths that had happened in the first wave especially, and then then also in the second wave, uh, that they presented potentially atypically or uh, the person didn't have a COVID test once they died. And so we missed a lot of deaths, even among working age people, that um, that otherwise should be in our our account, which is a long way to say, I mean, we are at 70%, but the number is probably closer to 50%. And that's just kind of like an educated guess based on everything that I've been staring at for the last two weeks.
0: Interesting. And so one of the other things that your spreadsheet keeps track of is, you know, whether these are private for-profit facilities, whether these are publicly owned facilities, what, has you know, what you, you've been keeping track of this longer than anyone and staring at this spreadsheet for a long ass time, what yeah. have you found when it comes to, you know, deaths of people in private facilities versus, you know, not for profit or public facilities?
1: Yeah. So generally, and I'm going to have to say generally because there is a caveat to that, but generally, uh, long term care facilities that are operated at a for profit model have been more deadly than pri- uh, than public ones. And Um, The reason why I say generally is because the, the one system that kind of throws a wrench into that, you know, I guess that analysis is Quebec, where the overwhelming majority of deaths happened within public care homes. But I think, you know, what's what's much more important to talk about than public versus private is the private sector logic, the profit driven logic that has infected all aspects of long term care, whether or not that's public or private. And that is really, I think, what has what has led to the most death and the most suffering. You know, when the military report came out in the spring, in the first, last spring, in the first wave, it was really interesting to see the difference in like depraved descriptions of the facilities in a private versus a public facility. So in the Ontario facilities, they were all private and the the practices and the descriptions of what was happening were really horrific, like, you know. Just the the like filthy kind of disgusting unsanitary practices that were happening. Whereas in the public facilities in Quebec, you didn't have that level of horror. It was much more like uh, people got COVID and we couldn't we couldn't stop them from getting COVID and they died. And part of that is related to architecture, Um, and there's a lot of, of, of research that's looked at this, and it makes obviously a lot of sense, that the more people you have crammed into a facility, like into a room, the more likely you would have had deaths. And there's a there's a direct correlation uh, between those two things. Um, usually, with an attention paid to like the like really large rooms, so like rooms of eight or or, or, or fewer than, than eight. But um, but it still exists as well when you've got people sharing a room, like two people sharing a room as well. And so um, the 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 really horrific carnage in the Regina. Parkside extended care I believe that is off the top of my head <laughs> I could triple check that but but in Saskatchewan a government a, a jurisdiction that has had the absolute worst death reporting I mean it's just been like abysmal what they're not really sharing with people There there was one um, facility, yeah, the Parkside Extended Care, where forty-three people died, and a lot of those residents were fair, were were shared, sharing a room for a room. So, mm-hmm. you know, could that could you have a publicly funded, not profit situation with five people in a room together and and have them all not get COVID? No, probably not. But what is it about the, the private sector, the private system that makes it so much better for them to have people sharing a room? Well, it's because it's profit maximization. The public version of that is to say, well, it's going to save money, and especially because the private system drives down the, the the cost and it drives down the quality, and then the public system is constantly trying to keep up because of that logic, right, because of austerity logic. And so, um, so yes, there's really no question about the for-profit approach to long-term care as being, it's, it's a disaster, but the logic of for-profit care appears in in, in public care as well and has just been, has been just as much, if not more, of a disaster in, in a province like Quebec where there's a really large proportion. Portion of publicly operated facilities.
0: Mm. I mean, yeah, the the idea that like this is something that you can make money off of, that there should be dividends and a highly paid CEO that are you know essentially <laughs> making a living, uh, an incredibly well paid living off of like an absolutely essential service, right? Like when. Our elders age and they need to be taken care of, and they can't live in their homes anymore. Like, this is something that we all need to consider as a society. And instead, we've just been like, well, the fucking, these people can make a buck off it. So I'm just going to download a certain percentage of it, especially in the like dense cities, right? Like, a lot of, Mm -hmm. especially in Alberta, you were saying, a lot of the publicly owned uh, facilities end up being in rural Alberta because it's not profitable (laughs) for for exactly. these operators to, to exist there. And it's just this like absolutely psychotic approach to, again, what is like an absolutely essential public good, right?
1: Yeah, it's it's really horrific. And, you know, you can draw a straight line between the logic that that maximizes profit uh, and someone not being able to get toe care for an entire year, right? I, I was just in touch with someone who's talking about how one of their loved ones did not have toe care, right? Like, how is that not part of the core services of a long-term care facility? Oh, it's because it's, it's seen as supplemental, right? Even if it's like a life or death situation for someone that's got di- diabetes, even though it's a, it's a health, it's a, it's a critical health um, uh, service that people rely on. Oh no, no. It was just like, well, someone else came in to do that and the pandemic started. So then there was no one there to do that. And so your loved one just didn't get this care for a whole year. It's really horrible. And you know, the more you look at long-term care and the logic behind long-term care, the, the more you can really see that this this is Canada's real like example of of market-driven capitalist healthcare. This is what it looks like. And sure, it's regulated, and sure, uh, you know, it's it's a, it's a an industry full of people that care. Um, But that's not that's not enough. Like it it is literally a system that is built to profit off of misery, whether that misery is the people, the residents themselves or that misery is the people working in these facilities like the double um, the double benefit of of basically theft from both of those people. Uh, has created this incredibly horrific system that just allowed for mass death to sweep it while politicians were able to sit back and go, oh shit, like, oh my God, there's oh, there's nothing we can do. Oh, this is so tragic. Oh, my God, let's have a memorial day. and it's like, fuck off. Like, you know, you've known about these issues for 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 so long. like it's it's not even funny how long these these issues have existed and, we, and they've been undeniable. And yet there's been absolutely no, serious attempt to deal with the core problems here and in fact the core problems have been exacerbated further
0: yeah so so we were talking you know private v public and and all of that and 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 there is a, a single private operator that I want to dig into a little bit and we could pick any of them you know you could pick age care or rivera or any one of these ghouls but the one that I want to take a bit of time to talk about is uh, extended care and, you know, again, we could have picked anyone, but I want to talk about Extendicare for for one reason, and that is because one of the co-owners of the Calgary Flames is a man named Alvin Liban. Uh, and he's also a co-founder of Extendicare and sat as a director for 32 years on the board of the company. Wow. <laughs> and, and so... Um, before we get into uh, even all of the death and destruction that extended care had happened at their facilities across Canada uh, during the pandemic, even pre pandemic CBC, like February 2020, like a month before everything shut down in February 2020, the CBC was reporting that an Extendicare care facility in Alberta had locked up their diapers so that workers uh, would would be limited in handing them out. And while this was happening, incontinent residents sat in urine-soaked pads, suffering from severe bladder and yeast infections, rashes, and open wounds. Just, again, pre-pandemic. This is the kind of care that Extendicare was uh, offering to the the people. And so, I don't know. Did you look this up? Do you know what the CEO of Extendicare made in 2020?
1: I need you to tell me his name and tell me how much he made. And I will-
0: his name is Dr. He's a doctor, apparently. Dr. Michael Guerriere.
1: Yeah. Okay. So Mike Guerriere and I have a history, if you can believe that. <laughs> oh, he, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. He used to be on the Ryerson Board of Governors while I was there. And when I started to do this research and I saw that he's the CEO of, of Extended Care, I fucking like fell over. I couldn't believe it. I was like, Mike Guerriere, like that guy? Are you kidding me? Uh, I, I don't have any positive memories of him. I was on the board of governors with him for two years managing Ryerson university. And you can imagine that we were not on the same side on, I don't think a single fucking issue. I also don't remember him being very interesting. Like there was at least some interesting characters on, on the board of governors and he wasn't even interesting. And I don't also have any recollection of him coming from healthcare. Like when I I was like, what the fuck, like really that was his background, even though like I did know the background of most people around that board. So yeah. Uh, and and he made a lot of money. They these people make a lot of fucking money because they are paying like they're maximizing profits and they're getting bonuses and that's what they are paid to do. But I when I saw that I actually knew him, I was like, "Oh, wow. That that really makes me want to vomit."
0: So Mike Guerriere, and he's a doctor. I don't know what kind of doctor he is, whether he's a doctor of of philosophy or sociology or, or an actual medical doctor. It's not important. But he uh, pulled in a cool $1.7 million in 2020. Uh, that's down slightly from his $2.09 million that he made in 2019. But he did see his bonus increase uh, from year to year by $137,000. So bang up job there, uh, Dr. Mike. Um and, uh, and their their body count across Canada is they've had three hundred and ninety people die in their facilities across Canada.
1: Mm, so. and that's that's high like compared I think the last time I tallied up Rivera, it was maybe about the same, maybe a bit lower. Uh, Sie Siena Senior living, which is like a notoriously deadly facility chain in Ontario, I think has had, like three hundred and twenty or three hundred and ten or so, and extended care has like this dubious uh, title of being one of these facilities that actually still has deaths happening in it. At extended care medics in Ottawa, one of the very few out, uh, Ontario. I mean, Alberta's gotten a couple of last like of, of smaller outbreaks where people have died in the last in the in the period of vaccination. Let's say. But to see uh, to see extended care kind of appear again and again and again and again on this list, it's really shocking. And I think what's really shocking, too, is the deaths are really spread out with extended care. Like, it wasn't like, I mean, I think that they certainly had some high, high deaths. In fact, I believe they even had maybe the highest uh, in Ontario. And I'm saying this slowly so that I can, you know, check myself here.
0: <laughs> yeah, look it up. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, they did. So so they were, so they own the Tender Care Living Center. Tender Care, oh my God. It's, uh, 81 people died at Tender Care. And, um, and this was just around Christmas. So you can just imagine 81 deaths just around Christmas and in the New Year. Um, really horrific, but uh, then it's like spread out quite a lot. All across Canada, which is not the case for a lot of these operators. Often they operate only within one region or within one province.
0: Mm. Yeah, and it wasn't just a, you know highly paid CEO of Extendicare that was making out like a bandit as well. The shareholders of Extendicare were paid handsomely in dividends in twenty twenty. They they uh, they paid out just under forty three million dollars in dividends. Extendicare did in twenty twenty.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's like every single one of those is someone family saying, please, like, take care of my loved one's toes, literally.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, this was in the context of I think, I think the Globe and Mail reported this out, which was that the variety of these, uh, these executives at these, you know, publicly traded uh, long term care operators received bonuses and were paid quite handsomely and saw absolutely no effect on their income. uh, Despite the fact that like death and destruction and misery were like literally like coming out of their buildings at an incredible rate over the past 14 months. What do you think is the proper way to describe those executives?
1: (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I, uh, I'm really only good at insults when they're coming at me on Twitter. Um, Someone (laughs) that's, making this kind of money off of death. I mean, I I would be so embarrassed. I would literally fucking like find a way to live at the bottom of the sea. Like I just I I I don't know how anybody exists in that it's just it's just so impossible for me to imagine like fuck someone started a GoFundMe me uh, to support my work uh today and i have felt like nothing but g- gratitude but also like oh my god this is like really uncomfortable how do people do this how do people get money given <laughs> to them um and so what 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 words would i call them i mean they're just they're, they're it's just it's just the absolute worst example of greed and honestly it's so bad that it makes me think of religion and like what should be done with people who are extremely terrifyingly yeah. greedy
0: <laughs> I don't yeah I mean I don't believe in hell but like these people are going to hell so it like, exactly,
1: go right to religion when you start to think of how fucking <laughs> evil these people are right <laughs>
0: yeah like these uh, absolute scum is another way to yeah. I think describe them but I also think it's worth doing a bit of a of a, a little mini dive here on Alberta because I've, I got you on and you've done all this work and you know I've the, the Alberta numbers are relevant you know we've got we've had just over twenty one people, 2,117 people have died of COVID as of May 11th, uh, according to your spreadsheet. Um, the Alberta death count in residential care is 1,236. So mm-hmm. around 58% uh, of of COVID deaths have happened in these residential care facilities. And of the top 10, seven of the top 10 are, are privately owned, uh, with uh, Mackenzie Town making its appearance, owned by Rivera, They've had a bunch of stories written about them, both pre and post pandemic. There's been a bunch of horror stories coming out of Mackenzie town. Um, Edmonton General, which is actually where I was born. It was a hospital. It's been converted to a continuing care center has uh, had a bunch of deaths too. Unfortunately, that's owned by Covenant Health, which is like, it's publicly funded, but it's run by the Catholics. I don't understand why we do that in Alberta. Um, we got age Care, Walden Heights, has uh, yeah had a 28 fatalities um th- this is i'm just kind of looking at the top 10 the the one the largest one was a publicly owned facility capital care linwood it's owned by alberta health services mm. had 21 of their 21% of their members uh, in a facility 59 out of 276 beds die over the course of the time of you keeping track of uh of this and like this is again the, the the logic that you were talking about of of private healthcare even when it's ostensibly publicly owned like by AHS it's no guarantee that these people are that you're going to fare any better right no the system the system is just what it is
1: well it's been created to be this way right so long term care has always existed outside of the public healthcare system right it's outside of the Canada Health Act and that allowed it to evolve completely outside the bounds of what we would consider the public healthcare system. And this was happening at the same time as Canada's welfare state was being dismantled, right? So you can think of like from the 1980s to the 1990s and then all of a sudden people start living longer and when they live longer, they have even more complex needs. And so care has to complexify at the same time as you know the, 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 the people are demanding it or the people need it. And so the result of that is that you have this like Frankenstein system that is uh got you know history in churches or benevolent societies it has history in taking care of like quote unquote the infirmed or people who are have been institutionalized and they're expected to provide hospital level care oftentimes and they just don't have the resources to do it like one of the things that i was surprised by in quebec was when they when the Quebec government started clearing hospitals, like all governments started to clear hospitals last March, March 2020, expecting an influx of patients. Basically they prepared in March 2020 for what happened in March 2021, right? But they they cleared hospital wards out so that there were beds that could accommodate people. And by by the way they cleared out units was they sent people to live in long-term care, which is what they do when when someone's in hospital and they are a patient that's called ALC, Alternative Level of Care. It means that they need to still be in a hospital-like setting, but that they, uh, that they, you know, it's just too long-term ter- for the hospital. The hospital needs the bed. And so that's oftentimes where you'll see people discharged into long-term care. And if you've ever had, like, seen a loved one go through this process, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, and so by by emptying hospital wards and pushing people into long-term care facilities, um, that was the state exercising the control that it has over its own institution, a hospital, right? And what what didn't really get reported at the time, although it's been since reported in Quebec, was in long-term care facilities in Quebec, they're just not set up to provide the level of care that hospitals are. And so there was a lot of situation where homes didn't even have oxygen. Like, they just aren't normally equipped with oxygen. And so when you have this massive respiratory crisis where, you know, there's some uh, days, which is what, that's what they're called in Quebec – Um, where like more than 100 people die and you have an oxygen crisis and your facility literally doesn't have oxygen, like obviously what's going to happen? It's going to be a complete nightmare. And like that's the fault of the system to an extent for not being set up to protect its residents in the case of a massive emergency like a pandemic. But it's also the result of the fact that this is a system that grew up outside of hospital settings. And it does not have the same regulation. Of course, there are regulations there are regulations around pay and around services and around um, levels of care. but they're 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 clearly not enough. And they are not to the level that we would expect or we would see within a hospital setting. And then you, of course, look at the hospitals and see more than a thousand people have died, even in hospital-acquired uh, COVID, and know that there's still gaps within the public system, the public healthcare system. But that—that's why long-term care is such a Frankenstein bo- body, because it's just like this complete afterthought that uh, governments have had no political will to design. This should have been really the last big public. Program that was created, but it just never was, right? Like the 1980s, 1990s, 2000s. There's been no public programs created in this country other than you know you can talk about Quebec's childcare system. But aside from that, this should have been as big as the healthcare system, creating a public service for uh, people to live within uh, a care a care setting or care situation, and it wasn't. And as things got worse and worse and worse for-profit co- companies swooped in and were like, oh, this is sweet. We actually can make a lot of money off of this. And they just kept on consolidating and consolidating. And so, you know, then that's where you get Extended Care owning residences and ta- towns and communities in cities all across Canada, oftentimes purchased from other, other settings. Ex- extended Care also manages public facilities. That's a whole other kind of Frankenstein situation that we have as well, where you have a public facility, but they they hire private management. and Therefore, the facility is de facto run as a private facility. And the oversights really lax. and so you know we we've had a serial killer operate within these facilities in Canada, uh, and that barely made any change. I mean, the 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 ink had barely dried on the lawfer report in 2019, uh, in the summer of 2019, when we were hit by the pandemic. And you know this was all very pre- 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 previsible. I was in French. It was all very foreseeable, foreseeable right? <laughs> yeah. And um, and and that's where we are today is it's like, OK, so then what gets us out of this mess? And and the the sad answer is that it it's going to take an incredible political will that literally does not exist, that needs to be built from the ground up.
0: Yeah, you know, we've got Justin Trudeau in the fall, you know, in his throne speech promising to establish national standards for long term care homes and then absolutely jack shit happening on that file since the throne speech, you know, especially and the, with the pandemic still going on, you know, like the time to do it is now. And, uh, and, and I don't think the solution here is is something that needs a ton of nuance or counterfactuals or, or, you know, like, a bunch of nuance mongering it's like expropriate their facilities start paying the workers proper wages start offering a standard of care that where you set benchmarks and that like ensures that people live a life with dignity and comfort like we are if if federal health care has all of this you know system around it we need just as much bullshit as we do around long-term care
1: well uh, or yeah just as much absolutely because th- these are people who are in extremely vulnerable situations and You know, unlike hospital settings where you are in and everybody's goal is to get you out as fast as possible, and I don't say that from the perspective of the healthcare system just wants to clear a bed, but literally no one wants to be there, right? Like patients want to be out as soon as possible, families want to be out there as soon as possible, doctors want people out home as possible. Physiotherapists want people like improving as fast as possible, right? That that is kind of how the, the health system works, right? But long term care is the opposite of that. Long term care is you will be here for a very long time. You actually want to be here as long as possible because the alternative to this location is death. And so, what is the way that we 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 support people to live like full and dignified lives in a in a care facility or care setting? Like the the problem in Canada is 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 the is there's a there's a massive block on what it takes for us to make sure that people live long and dignified lives and supported lives. And that block is ableism. Like that is the thread that really goes through uh, this pandemic in the most profound way. Um, and we can talk about racism and colonialism too, because th- those are also threads that, that have very deep impacts on how this pandemic has unfolded. But ableism, I think, is probably the most important because it. It explains why this has gotten such little attention, why abuse has been so rampant, why public attitudes towards this hasn't created any change, um, and why um, the, the the users of these residences, the, the people that live there, the people that live there for a long time, their voices have been completely ignored from this entire discussion. And, um, and you know, you can blame politicians for that, you can blame journalists for that, but at the, at the end of the day, it, it's, it's, it's just explained by ableism in this incredibly ableist society that we live in.
0: I mean, you are someone who kind of, God bless you, like actually listens to CBC and The Current and all their other programs on a regular basis. And I I remember you were tweeting that you were shocked to actually hear the voice of an elderly person in long-term care, like on one of their news stories or in one of their broadcasts, right?
1: Yeah. And they still fucked the story up because the whole story was like situated around communities, like, like physical communities where just a lot of old people live. And they're like, how do we provide services for communities that just have a lot of old people in them? And it's like, Sorry, there's a fucking difference between old people and people who live in long-term care. Like, the Venn diagram might be very big. Like, there might be quite a lot of overlap. But when someone's got reduced capacities and needs, like, assistance to live in whatever way they, they might need that, you have to build some sort of support structure. And, you know, there's debate if if it can be home care. There's debate, what does dementia care look like and how do you provide a humane dementia care? And then then the debate, who pays for all of this? But, like, fuck, like, our media won't even engage with that. They're like, oh, we're going to talk about long-term care. Here is a woman that created a really nice rec room in her facility that she lived in. And it's like, what the fuck? These are different issues. Um, And if you want to have that discussion with elderly people in this country talking about their struggles and the activism that they're engaged in to have like services and access to classes and add access to whatever, like um, pastimes and activities and like, there's just so many ways that you can take that conversation. But to build that segment that I'm talking about a segment that happened this morning as a segment to long-term care is just so indicative of how, the CBC especially, but mainstream media in general has this like impossibility. It is impossible for them to, to to engage with the core problems that this is a system that literally profits off of people dying. Obviously they're not gonna give them quality food. It profits off of their death, right? <laughs> like this is really, really basic. And you know, we we heard so little from the people who live in these facilities uh, throughout the pandemic. That um, that I think that just really does show how incredibly marginalized they have been uh, they have been during the pandemic, but of course before that as well.
0: Yeah, you spoke about how you know ableism is you know one of the things driving this, but you also mentioned uh, you know racism and white supremacy, and I think it's worthwhile. To bring up you know, the fact that the mainstream media is now finally cottoning on to the fact that ever since Nahed Nenshi and uh, Jagmeet Singh have now said out loud that uh, something that we everyone who has been paying attention has known for quite some time, which is that the like anti-mask, COVID denier, anti-lockdown activists uh, are rife with fash and white supremacists. Yeah. Um, now the media is like, oh, wait, a, wait a second. Are, are there are what, are, is what Jagmeet Singh and Nahed Nenshi saying correct? Oh, my God.
1: It's so pathetic because it's like, sorry, why is it up to someone like Singh to have to say this? You know, like, I mean, the NDP should have been saying this a year ago. But he's also in a bit of a catch-22, right? As a racialized man, the only one who holds, uh, well, <laughs> I shouldn't say that, one of two national racialized leaders now, of course, with uh, the, the Green Party and enemy Paul. Um, you know, obviously, when he says something like this, journalists are like, oh, oh, Jagmeet Singh is claiming there's racism, right? And like a third of the reporting will be like, yeah, yeah, he's claiming there's racism, of course. And then two thirds of the reporting will be like, huh, what's he basing his claim on? You know, like- Brown brown
0: person uses race card.
1: Exactly, right, right? exactly. It's it's this completely bullshit kind of approach to race. But, you know, like I don't know what journalists have been waiting for because we not only have had like fucking- kids sig heiling in the streets of fucking calgary or all of the hate crimes against black hijabi women in edmonton or all of the hate crimes that have happened with the tiki torch like i mean there's so many examples that have happened and and you know i'm i'm writing a book about this moment and and when i say i'm writing I, i finished the manuscript actually about six weeks ago so like it's done and it's in someone else's hands and i'm really excited for it to be out next fall but my, my chapter on vaccines looks at the coverage of the, the vaccine hesitant and the anti-mask rallies. And, you know, aside from the fact that I've been writing about this, Sandy and I talked about this on the podcast like a year ago, I still went into the, the the media coverage to see like how these events are being covered. And it'd be like a journalist would be literally in a crowd having people spit on them. And they'd be like, "Why why are you spitting on me? Don't you want your news covered? <laughs> like, get the fuck out of the crowd. Why are you there? You know, it was just still covered as if it was like a Santa Claus parade or some kind of fun event or whatever. Um, and even the disconnect between like there was one rally in Kelowna, where the journalist who was present, like had some really horrible stuff happen to him. And, and he posted about it on Twitter. But if you read the report that he wrote, you'd have no idea. It just was like, oh, some people came together in downtown Kelowna today and some people were in favor and some people were opposed. It was like, guy, you fucking were like attacked. Like they were threatening you and that somehow didn't get it into your story. Like, why not? So, yeah, it's really annoying. I mean, that's the weakest word that I can come up with to explain how I feel about this whole situation. But it is very annoying. And it's very obvious that the far right would see this moment in these movements as being perfect, perfect locations to organize around. Just because statistically speaking, white people have more distance to the the carnage and the horror of this pandemic.
0: Yeah, I mean you wrote about it in passage, you know, we had Kurt Phillips from Anti Hate Canada on. Yeah, like like this is a moment for the far right to organize, right? People are mad about COVID, people are mad about subject X COVID is the one hot one at the moment and lockdowns and they're in there. Like they are with everything, whether it's, you know, anti-Muslim at the border stuff or whether it's yellow vest or whatever, like there's always the fash and the white supremacists are always in those movements because that's where they know they can find new recruits. <laughs> like it's yeah. not hard.
1: Well, no, exactly. And it, and it's not just like they're in any movement. They're very, very sharp. They know exactly what they should be doing. And, and this is where, you know, you, I would look ex- like right at the left and say, what the fuck, where are you? Where's the labor movement? Where's the fucking where where are people like in the streets trying to help uh, give another expression to the to the ways that the anti-vax movement has um, has expressed itself? Because there's there's obviously a hardcore tier of racists within these movements. And then there's the the white people who have no understanding of how to connect what they believe towards racism and instead are like, oh, Big Pharma, Bill Gates, these billionaire piece of shit, I don't trust them. You know, uh, this is all about uh, restoring a global order that's anti-human. And it's like, I can give you that perspective from the left. Like, that is all stuff that is well and easy to explain from a left-wing perspective. You're right. Bill Gates is a piece of shit. You're right that this will be a moment where all social forces are going to be reorganized to make sure that people are kept down. Like, all of that stuff is true. Where it stops being true, obviously, is, is is you know, is created in a lab and all this kind of fucking shit that I'm sure a lot of us <laughs> I'm hearing are hearing from loved ones. And, you know, but, but again, where's the left to, to, to catch those people, to give those people the fucking resources that aren't like Dr. Fucking McGillicuddy's good time fucking blog. Right. Which so many of these people are, I mean, that's not literally the name of the fucking blog, but you know, a lot of these people are, are, are consuming media that is just so fucking bullshit. And I have, I have, I have a personal kind of connection to this stuff where, you know, we're like, this is right wing, this is right wing tripe. This is, this is right wing organized garbage. And it's like people who would normally be horrified to be associated with are like, no, it's not. Okay, well, here's the connection to InfoWars. No, you, anybody can make that connection. It's not. And you're just like, oh, my God. Okay, fine. So like the the right and, and of course, this is globally connected, right? This isn't like Chris Guy is a fucking genius and therefore he decided to jump into this movement himself. This is um, this is a globally coordinated effort to fucking you know really destabilize social cohesion, and we can talk about why that might be. But um, the 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 far right has like is very connected and very um like they they're very stealth right they know exactly when and what and and how and you know what we saw in Quebec was all of the organizing that existed with la Meurthe and 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 the other like really far right groups just jumped right into action again but we're all like wearing an anti fucking flag mask rather than or an anti mask flag rather than a fucking uh anti immigration flag
0: yeah when there are these moments in time these waves uh you know you have to take advantage of it and and for your cause right and and the the far right the white supremacist the fash definitely took advantage of the pandemic to get their message out to increase their numbers to organize to demonstrate power in the streets and uh, i i agree with your analysis that like you know we also have to take advantage of these times as well
1: yeah absolutely
0: and and finally Nora we couldn't have you on and simply and not talk about uh, just an absolutely hilarious and atrocious uh, thing that happened over the weekend, which was four uh, journalists from the Toronto Star who all look who look very similar. I think three of the four are like blue haired, brown, uh, blue eyed, brown haired like dudes. And I think one of them is just like a brown eyed. Uh, White dude. Did, Anyways, uh, they're yeah. incredibly similar. And they won uh, a National Newspaper Award for their work uncovering how death rates from COVID-19 were higher in for-profit homes rather than in other types of long-term care residences. Mm. Where do you think they got that information from, Nora?
1: <laughs> well... Yeah, so this whole situation is very annoying to me, to say the least. Um, different kind of, Differently annoying than uh, talking about racism and racism being ignored by the mainstream press. But you see, I rely on that word a lot. Um, where did they get their information? So, you know, th- this is a group of journalists who are you know, like all well-known. Um, if you read them at the Toronto Star, <laughs> some of them have no idea who I am, even though I know that like they're literal family connections. So it's kind of funny, like how a one-way streety this kind of goes sometimes. But um, they, uh, they took ministry data and they looked at the ministry data that was like how many deaths has happened, how many beds per facility, and a whole bunch of other stuff that they, that they compiled and they came up with this, this report. Um, they did not plagiarize me. I think that that's important to say. Um, if they had plagiarized me, the numbers would be higher because I've been collecting data that isn't just ministry reports, right? As I said earlier, I've been collecting data to go beyond the ministry reports because frankly, we cannot trust the ministry reports. We need to verify the ministry reports with whatever research that we can do ourselves. That is journalism. But anyway, but they stuck with the ministry data and that that would be where they may would, would have lifted my numbers, which they did not. They took it from the ministry. But it isn't really about that. It's It's more that like, in this country, um, and and actually it was Sandy Hudson that said this on the on the podcast, and I hadn't really thought about it in this way until she said it, uh, which comes out this week. So you know, take a listen if you have any more time after listening to this. Um, she she was like, "Wow, it's really amazing how quickly uh, the Canadian media world works to erase the contributions of people um, and to, to bestow credit uh, for having done something. That is not just theirs. It's not just the, theirs to 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 own. It's it's actually there's and it's not just me either. There's been a lot of other people that have uncovered this, and um and when they were doing that 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 data analysis, my dad had already clearly showed that. I mean, it was fucking obvious. I was I was saying that other people were saying that this is very clearly what's happening within private care, um and so you know w- one of the four of them has been quite I don't know fr- friendly I guess to say like you know reminding people that oh no no Nora's great her, her work is great so that's been really nice. But I know that the other ones are like, who I've never heard of this woman why are you why are you saying i plagiarized i know one of them is actually like being in touch with people telling them to delete their tweets which is just like such <laughs> which an, is
0: always very funny
1: <laughs> oh yeah it's such an ungracious fucking thing to do because it's like they didn't ask to win this award right and they've won this award they've got this recognition and they obviously are feeling a bit called out because they should fuck right <laughs> um and rather than being all like hurt that someone's hurting their feelings or lodging allegations against them that are not true maybe what they should be doing is a appreciating the fact that like people don't know how this works people don't know how journalism works and people are certainly don't understand how they can see someone doing this work every single fucking day for free and be 100% shut out by the mainstream media including by the Toronto Star you know they they those guys knew about the data that I was collecting I mean at least one of them did from the start and um you know they they were never in touch that's the Toronto Star is one newspaper of people that have I don't think I've been in touch with anyone from the Toronto Star I've been in touch with lots of people from the globe lots of people from CTV lots of people from from global and, you know, other publications, but oddly not, well, not the Toronto star or the CBC actually, yeah. now that I say that.
0: <laughs> well, it took four dudes all named Brad or whatever their names were. And to do the work of one Nora, which is a uh, very funny as well. Yeah. Um, it, it,
1: I mean, it's, it's just, it's very annoying. Like, like as, as, as I've already said it, it would be nice if, uh, good work was rewarded in this country, and it's not like the, these these awards were are obviously an attempt to reconstruct how people remember what happened, right? And so that the Toronto Star can say we were the ones that did that, and it's like, nah, that's not entirely well, true.
0: I mean, yeah, you and I both know that Canadian media is this like incredibly insular space, right? And that the people who rise to the top uh, of this industry tend to be um, people who are not great, right? <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't call it a I wouldn't call it a merit based industry. You know what I mean?
1: No, but it's also like even if they are great, like have some fucking grace. Right. Like, I mean, maybe I shouldn't say it that way because it doesn't sound like I have very much grace, but for fuck's sakes, like like you guys got paid to do this work (laughs) and I've done more work than you and I've not been paid like at the very least be like, oh, hey, Nora, Man, it was so shitty that, like there's literally no mechanism for you to even be nominated for these awards, right? Like something like that. But, um, you know, I think that the fact that like people are making fun of how they all kind of look the same, um, it is true. Like there's a certain white guy journalist that is so fucking clueless and so out to lunch that they're just not paying attention to what's immediately in front of their face. and i I completely understand why they that why they feel like they are one hundred percent justified in fucking telling people to delete tweets rather than engaging with what people are saying and, and saying, you know, we didn't plagiarize Nora. Um, this is how it works. And yeah, the way she's been treated by media is really shitty. Like they could just say that. That's not fucking hard to say.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I went to journalism school. I don't know if you did. You know, we've I worked dropped kind it of- a <laughs> Yeah, there you go. I mean, I I, I got a degree, but it, it's, it's irrelevant, right? The work uh, is the work. But it, the media itself is this it's such a small ecosystem of people uh, who actually are employed to be journalists, right? And so, and by and large, you know, the people who are actually doing the work don't see themselves as workers, right? They think that if they are very clever and that if they say the right things, that they'll be able to, like be elevated to a very special place and it's just like the vast majority are you just going to get chewed up and spit up by this machine and the ones that do rise are only gonna are are like what like the the jen gersons of the world or the like colby cautious like only the most kind of like psychotic and uh, and wrong uh people kind of rise to the top especially in the kind of like opinion world right
1: yeah like the opinion world is a complete fucking wasteland and it's and it's weird to be an opinion writer in this country because i just i mean i i'm just never ever going to be in that world um but but news reporters need to fucking get their fucking heads around the world as well and they like it, it, i mean it's just it's just totally clueless right like fuck i mean i <laughs> I, I actually nominated myself for four awards this past uh, like season, I guess, since winter, because I was like, oh, what the fuck? Why not? And I was like, well, at least I'll win. I'll probably win the, the Canadian Association Journalist Award on Feminist Writing that uh, advocates change and leads the path for change. Right. I was like, I just wrote a book on that. <laughs> I will at least win that. No, no, no. They they gave it to Toronto Star reporters who covered crimes sexist crimes right i mean the reporters that that one are excellent reporters but it's just like like you've got to be kidding yourself canadian association of journalists if you think that reporting on crime is is a feminist act that's going to change anything like you can do feminist reporting but that's not changing shit it's not through awareness that anything changes there's no amount of fucking prose talking about some guy that's murdered some somebody that's going to change anything it's going to take organizing and if any of you actually read my submission you would fucking learn that <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. no yeah i mean I just there's just no no way in hell right like it's it's just an impossibility because the gatekeepers have decided what is and isn't social change and their idea of social change is fucking literally not social change
0: yeah and speaking of awards, I would be remiss to not mention that the Progress Report, this podcast has been nominated for the incredibly prestigious and extremely well-known Canadian Podcast Awards in Very the current nice. affairs program, which I was unaware of. I did not nominate myself. Someone must have done it for us. But uh, but I look forward to losing to uh, whichever podcast wins out of Rosie Barton's podcast or Steve Pagan's podcast.
1: Oh, my God. Talk about like living in podcast hell, right?
0: Yeah. But this has been a a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you coming on, Nora. How can people kind of find you on the internet and support your work and order your book and, you know, plug your pluggables? How can people find you?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, you can find me um, at northerdotes.ca. That's my website. And there you can find my writing or you can look at how to buy my book. You can find my book pretty much in any independent store, uh, bookstore in Canada, I guess. I mean, who the fuck knows? I haven't actually seen it in a bookstore because I live in Quebec City and there are no English bookstores here. Okay. Um, and so that's called Take Back the Fight. It's published by Fernwood. You could buy it direct from Fernwood, too, if you'd like. And you can check out my podcast with Sandy Hudson at com or anywhere where you get your podcasts. We come out every Tuesday. And we are not a, an award-nominated podcast. <laughs> but, you know, it, we have fun uh, anyway. And um, we'll definitely be voting for you if anyone asks, which they won't. Um, Which they're not. It's not a
0: people's choice thing. I have no idea who's behind it. No, I
1: know. I mean, they have a people's (laughs) choice category and it's like, what the fuck choices? Who are these people? Like what the, anyway, but, um, but yeah, you can find me all those places or, or like, you know, failing all of that. You can find me on Twitter, probably yelling at a cloud.
0: Yeah. Or about CBC coverage, which God bless you. I cannot fucking, I cannot do that. It's
1: so, Um, I'm so pathetic, man. Like I know, I know, I know.
0: It's Whatever, it has, maybe you just, you just put it on and it's like your background noise. I don't know. It
1: is, it okay. is. And then it's like, but it can't be background noise because it's like, oh my God, that was shit. I have to say something about how shit that was, you know? Like Matt Galloway himself yesterday had a tweet that was retweeted almost 400 times where it was like six people have died at uh, the Downsview long-term care facility, according to this military report. And it's like, guy, the number is 26. You fucking didn't copy and paste this tweet right. And now 400 fucking people have retweeted it. God, delete it, you know, correct yourself, say something. Not a single person no. in the fucking responses were like, hey, Matt, the, you missed a, the operative uh, digit on that fucking six, right? <laughs> Just fucking pathetic. But anyway, whatever. That's our country. No, it's so great. Keep
0: doing it. Keep. I make fun of you, but you should keep doing it. Um, oh, thanks. And, and folks, if you like this podcast, you want to keep hearing more podcasts by me featuring fantastic guests like Nora. There's a few easy things you can do to help us out. One of which is reviews. Reviews are very helpful. They help people find the podcast. Sharing the podcast is also very helpful, um, especially if you know someone who has been concerned about long-term care recently. I think this has covered a lot of fucking important ground. And the most important way to support this podcast is to join the 450 other folks who help keep this little independent media project going, go to uh, theprogressreport.ca slash patrons put in your credit card, contribute, whatever you can afford, $5, $10, 15 a month we really appreciate it. The link to that is also in the show notes. Also if you have anything that you think I need to hear any notes, thoughts or comments, I'm very easy to get a hold of. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Duncan Kinney. You can reach me by email at K at progressalberta.ca Thanks uh, to Cosmic Family Communists for the an- amazing theme Thanks again to Nora for coming on. Thank you for listening and goodbye.